It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down Hey folks, what's going on? My name's KP Burke and this show's called American Loser. I am a stand-up comic and hey guys, comedy is back, right? That's what New York is finally saying. That's how that's how sad that industry is. Everyone's just like, we get to go inside now to tell the dick jokes. <laughs> it's very depressing, but it is back. Uh, that laughter on the other microphone is, of course, my Delph of a dad, Lawrence Patrick. How are you? Oh, we're just doing great, Kevo. Just doing great. Couldn't be better. If I was doing, doing any better, I'd have to be twins. So we're, we're all happy here. Well, uh, <laughs> brought to you via the magic of StreamYard, you guys know that laughter in the background. The man who is literally our Wizard of Oz. The big kahuna in the building. Pay no attention to the kahuna behind the curtain. <laughs> curtain, curtain. How are you guys? It's good, man. Uh, you good. sound good. Lawrence Patrick sounds good. And uh, I think we got some uh, – we're, we're cooking with gas here. This guy, we started sitting here writing about him because he's he's almost topical. We have that weird thing where, Dad, sometimes we, uh, we cover something that's topical, but it's literally from American history but it'll use buzzwords that uh, – we had a couple of Facebook posts and Instagram posts for this very podcast – they got fact checked on social media that says because uh, we were talking yeah. about uh yeah there there has been election tampering in the past it's happened that's a real thing it was a yeah, first yeah. episode of loser oh. we covered oh it's one of these episodes all right I'm in one what is old is new again you know it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> the same old same old but yep it just continues on you think you learn from history well. Sometimes it just repeats itself over and over and over again. But let's get back to the to the start of it on this one, anyhow. Legitimately, the start of it. Uh, this guy is fantastic. Uh, much like when something controversial hits the news and people throw the term "gate" on the end of it. Uh, for like, for instance, obviously, Dad, you lived through this—the infamous uh, Watergate scandal. Watergate scandal. Yep. Why they call it Watergate in ten seconds or less? Uh, well, it was a whole. Uh, tricky Dick Nixon sending in some people to uh, break into the opposing party's uh, headquarters, and uh, they the guys that went in there were known as the plumbers, and it was uh, it was a whole a whole big thing. As uh, in, where did in, they break into? Come on, guy. Uh, Watergate. Yeah, the Watergate Hotel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was it. So that those the oh, names okay. are synonymous. Yeah, that's all you had to say. You want to go? That's that simple. But hey, listen, listen, some people don't know. So it's a history show. He uh, gave us a great little recap. So eat a dick, KP. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing, because it's it's true, though, is that when people do like history, you know, history people get excited because they want to tell you, well, here's the prelude to it. It's like if you say, uh, well, hey, is that a good movie? And you're like, well, you see, the director had a vision for it. and It was based off a novel. I'm like, well, no, but it was, was it a good movie? And guys like me and my father, we don't know how to tell you. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> but Maybe also, that's why the episodes are going over an hour, right? Well, uh, this one, we're going to do our damnedest not to uh, be over on the hour. This one, uh, it, it's I do believe that we're going to be able to move uh, expeditiously through this. But real quick, just one little housekeeping note. 
Thank you so much to everybody uh, over at uh, the Patreon. It's uh, you guys are the founding losers. Uh, the patches are going. To, are they in the mail yet? Or are they about they're to be mailed? The, they're in the mail. Yep, they're in the mail, baby. All right. So check your mailbox. The United States Postal Service will be delivering you the Patreon exclusive merchandise for American Loser, which is our way of saying thank you so much for allowing us to continue to buy Kahuna's love just one share at a time. <laughs> so. Also, KP, you forgot the most important gate in history. It was uh, people remember Muppet Gate when uh, they switched Kermit's voices. This was an important moment in history. Uh, when are we covering that on American Loser, huh? <laughs> that would be interesting, actually. I know, I know a couple people that would be fun to bring in for that one, too. <laughs> Thank um, you, Gohona, for uh, pointing out the, the great uh, Muppet Gate caper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, fellas. So what are we talking about today? Well, uh, the last thing I have to say is thank you to all the listeners who expressed some concern. I was very, very lucky. I got COVID. Uh, I was completely asymptomatic. Um, I know another person who uh, is in our circle that uh, also had COVID and luckily was pretty much asymptomatic and uh, has a beat. And then uh, I know uh, another guy who for some reason just can't seem to get it. So, you know, if <laughs> it, it stinks that COVID is affecting people. It's really been a terrible uh, year and everything like that. That being said, I got the best case ever of it because uh, all I did was just sit up in my uh, pretty much sit in the office and watch uh, movies on the laptop the entire time. But did a little bit of research here. My father brought this guy up to me a long time ago. Uh, Kahuna, are you familiar with the term gerrymandering? Yes, I kind of have a loose idea of what it actually means. But like as far as what it probably actually means, I probably do not know. Yeah, so gerrymandering is typically brought up as, uh, I mean, it goes uh, hand in hand with, you know, kind of voting districts and maybe rigging of elections and stuff like that, you know. But again, yeah. these are those terrible buzzwords where you can just, uh, I mean, you, you get flagged immediately or the, they're taking stuff down off some social media. It's kind of crazy here. But this term gerrymandering, we're going to explore where it actually came from today. It's pretty wild. You would think that there'd be some super clever thing in here, but nope, it's pretty, I mean, it's very interesting. The guy's life is very interesting. Uh, what if I told you uh, gerrymandering was, uh, you won't even believe it, but there's a guy with the last name Jerry, and he's a founding father, and he is this week's American loser. So <laughs> case in point, ladies and gentlemen, today's episode uh, will be a man who has something named after him that's not necessarily an honor, Mr. Elbridge Jerry. So, oh. Yeah. Early on in the formation of what would become the United States, you would see this early concept of Northerners and Southerners not quite getting along, you know, kind of a, a similar thing here. It's that, that Mason-Dixon line. There's a different way of doing things. As the great Colin Quinn says, uh, people have a different personality every 700 miles. So, pretty good line there. But uh, once England was out of the way and the colonists had to start building upon their idea in this funky experiment of theirs, uh, two large camps are going to emerge. You got uh, the Boston area boys of New England region, and then you have the Southern camp that seems to churn out every other president with, you know, really being based out of Virginia. So the geographical differences would be further compounded by the political party differences. This is where it gets crazy, because remember, we always we bring up political terms on the show. But they don't exactly mean what we think that they mean, because things change every 30 years or so. So one of the original uh, party beefs, if you will, goes back to the Democratic Republicans, Versus the Federalists. And we uh, decided we're going to go ahead and say, uh, well, hey, George Washington advised us against forming political parties. But what the fuck does he know? He's just the father of the nation. So. Yeah. Now, Kev, uh, 
is that three different parties? You got your Democrats, you got your Republicans, and you got your Federalists. I think yeah. you ought to uh, just expand just briefly on. <laughs> Wait a minute. So we had a political party known as the Democratic Republicans. Indeed, we did. So uh, it's one of those fun things, too, where if you are uh, a person who associates with a political party nowadays, you would sit there and you'd be like, well, I mean, uh, well, I'm a Democrat. So they're, they're Democratic Republicans. They must be better Republicans. And then the Republicans are like, well, I mean, I could probably be a Democrat if uh, they were, you know, uh, Democratic Republicans. So it's uh, there, there was a funny little thing I saw online where it was a pee pee poo 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 pee pee. That's my impression of anyone talking about politics. Uh, <laughs> And uh, but yeah, that's correct. This uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson's going to emerge as one of the leading figures of the Democratic Republicans. And then the Federalists are going to have, I mean, a litany of guys, but really the uh, one of the, the big names, if you will, that's attached to all this is going to be none other than the legendary John Adams. So uh, G-dubs still to this day, I think the only uh, politician who did not have a political party while he was in office, really. But um Today's loser is one of those rare guys that will have friends on both sides of that political aisle that you just had me explain, Dad. This uh, Democratic Republicans and uh, Federalists alike both found themselves uh, being friends with this guy by the name of Elbridge Jerry. <laughs> and um, he's born in Massachusetts, so he's a Boston boy, all right, on July 17th, 1744. His father was a successful shipping merchant, uh, merchant and his mother was the daughter of a successful shipping merchant. So anything running the family there, dad, a little yeah, bit? Yeah, a lot of familia. We're, uh, we're selling stuff for merchants. It's uh, trading. That's a <laughs> well, uh, he's one of 11 kids. Uh, sadly, only five will live to adulthood. Uh, the third, uh, I believe the, the third born, if you will, that lived to you know reach adulthood is Elbridge Jerry. Uh, I mean, times were tough back then. If you had 11 siblings and only five of them lived to adulthood, I mean, it's times are already tough back then. And then on top of that, the Jerry family's decision to hire Casey Anthony as a babysitter did not help either. <laughs> they're yes. just throwing, they're just having kids throw them in a dartboard, see what sticks. <laughs> <laughs> it was sad stuff, man. But uh, uh, Elbridge is a, a rather bright boy. All right. And uh, the family's wealth will allow him to be educated by tutors in order to refine his academic gifts. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, the tutors were pretty good, Dad, because what school does this fellow wind up going to at age 14? Yeah, he uh, enters at the hallowed halls of Harvard. So he is Massachusetts for sure. Yeah, and he's no janitor walking around solving problems on a blackboard, right? This guy is – Yeah. there's big things, big expectations for old, uh, old Elbridge Jerry of Massachusetts. So um, he's actually going to graduate from Harvard and then joins into the family business, if you will, his father's thriving merchant business. And uh, his father was actually a pretty big success story to begin with because he was active in uh, both English and uh, colonial American politics. And he only emigrated to the United States from England in 1740. Uh, Elbridge was being uh, having been born in 1744. So. He's born in America, Elbridge Jerry, the guy we're talking about here, but his father was born in England and uh, uses his smarts and his connections and everything else to actually become, uh, make the Jerry family one of the richest in all of Massachusetts. So they're doing pretty good. This is good stock to be coming from here. All right. Um, Dad, what would you say would be one thing that would put a merchant business, uh, you know, hard times ahead? You know, let's say you have an international shipping business. What's going to be a thing back in 
the 1700s that could uh, maybe put a damper on business a little bit? Uh, tariffs and taxes. Tariffs and taxes. And, and what else? Perhaps uh, some sort of a, I mean, maybe these giant floating, uh, you know, man of war ships that could be blocking oh, the yeah. harbors. Yeah, when they come into, into your uh, home port and say, hey, this place is shut down like they did, like the British did in, in Boston. Uh, you know, the colonials were getting a little frisky and uh, the British decided to retaliate. We're going to shut down your port. So if you're shutting down all business, that's going to whoop a hurting on a whole lot of people. Indeed, it is. It's uh, so like you said, too, also the taxes and tariffs, that's, those are going to be something that businessmen are going to hate because they're like, oh, my God, I'm working so hard to make this money. And you bastards keep taking it for frivolous bullshit. So. One such item of frivolous bullshit that uh, becomes a, a big catalyst for uh, what we're going to know to be the American Revolution is that as the French and Indian War is now over, the colonial participants are eager to get back to their lives and their livelihoods. Uh, many of them were going to be enraged, though, to find out that the British crown would now be taxing them for the very same war that they had just taken part in on their soil. So, hey, you guys know all that work you did where, you know, I mean, well, it's a... Uh, now you got to pay us for us helping you out with that thing. A little bit of a dickhead move now. Yeah. And then at the same time, uh, they're being taxed and yet um, they've got no say in, in their taxes. This was like the first time now that the British are uh, running roughshod over the, uh, the colonists that uh, they're deciding parliament back home in England are deciding. And yet they have uh, the colonists have no voice in parliament. So that whole, taxation without representation type of thing comes in. And these are the same guys that helped the British. They, they're all, they're all British citizens. They consider the, uh, themselves Englishmen. It's written right. down in a lot of the documents during the French and Indian war. So, I mean, these are the same people that helped uh, fight against the French and the Indians. Uh, and now they're being uh, taxed to help pay for the war that they fought. in. so, uh, you know, that didn't really sit too well. Well, Elbridge is uh, definitely one of the more outspoken voices on this. And, uh, of course, that meant he was going to have to start ta uh, talking about these matters and maybe some of the taverns in the, the greater Boston area. Um, he's going to start rubbing elbows with some pretty uh, important figures here. Uh, Sam Adams, John Adams, Sam Adams Summerale, uh, Big Poppy, and, of course, Christian Cordes of one of the founding fathers. Well, that is Big Poppy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Big Poppy lookalike contest. If you guys haven't figured out that joke by now, I'm not explaining it, okay? I'm not doing it. Just <laughs> We're not even going to acknowledge it. <laughs> but uh, Elbridge Jerry. Kevin, Kevin, I just got to say, it's nice that when our sound engineer is also part of the laugh track in the in the background, so well, well played, sir. Well played. Well he played. makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he's hanging out with the, those those up to no good Adams boys over in Boston and a bunch of the other Sons of Liberty type figures. And uh, Elbridge is going to become heavily involved in local politics, often working hand in hand with uh, the firebrand Sam Adams. So uh, the difference between Sam Adams and John Adams, by the way, if just kind of a, a Cliff Notes version here. John Adams, careful, measured, pragmatic, uh, always showing foresight. Sam Adams, keg party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. John is uh, the lawyer and uh, uh, well-spoken and you know, thoughtful and uh, somewhat reserved where uh, Sam, eh, not so much. <laughs> 
Yeah, if um so Ooh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely uh I actually would love that if you could do a dream casting couch, it would be uh uh John Belushi as uh Sam Adams. <laughs> but um no, Elbridge is he's working hand in hand with Sam Adams uh and using his resources again with this merchant business and he's been very active in local politics here. It's going to earn our boy Elbridge an invite to something quite prestigious, Dad. Uh, it's going to be called the First Continental Congress. So uh, the First Continental Congress, if you, it's really mostly forgotten about in American history here. It's because it's one of those things where it's like Star Wars. It starts with two and then you, you figure out, well, there had to be a first one if there's a second one, right? Um, but the story of the American Revolution is a slow burner, folks. It's a lot like Breaking Bad. It's always moving along, but the big, big stuff isn't going to happen just yet. So, I mean, how much do you know off the top of your head, Dad, about the First Continental Congress? Well, it was uh, really just a bunch of guys that got together and did a whole lot of bitching and moaning. And what are we going to do about um, Parliament and the king inflicting all these taxes on us? And this is, a, you know, this is an outrage. But the First Continental Congress, uh, of course, there were firebrands like Sam Adams who were going to take it to the mattresses right, <laughs> right from the <laughs> right from the top. But uh uh, others were a little more reserved and, well, we're going to send petitions to uh, the king, which he then just routinely ignored. But, uh, you know, they were trying to settle things through negotiations and peacefully to, to start with, but that wasn't really getting them anywhere. And there was a couple other little incidents where now finally blood was spilt and that kind of took it to the, to the next level. And then at the second continental Congress, you know, there was some, uh, definitely people there now who have had a change of heart where this is bullshit they were just being ignored and put down upon so uh that's when uh, a few more people decided we got to get we got to put some teeth into our proclamations well it's uh you're absolutely right too because the first continental congress just so everyone knows it also does take place in philadelphia this one takes place in uh, 1774 it's going to last most of september and most of october and it includes, uh, again, some of the, for lack of a better term, some of the big swinging dicks that would be considered uh, future founding fathers in uh, George Washington, John and Sam Adams, John Jay, Jimmy Two Times, and more. All right. He's got to go get the papers, get the papers. But uh, an invite was sent to Elbridge, but he declined the invite as he was still mourning the loss of his father because his father uh, had, it was very ill and had passed away, and that kind of had him taken maybe putting politics on. Hey, guys, revolution on the back burner. Got to take care of the old man here a little bit. So that first Congress is formed in response to, as you mentioned, Dad, or alluded to, I should say, the Intolerable Acts, and most specifically, the Stamp Act. And for those of you who don't know, uh, if this is your first episode, I mean, go back, check out some of our back catalog. We got some great stuff on some of the founding fathers that turned out to be pretty shady dudes or you know, maybe invested heavily in America and shit didn't work out for him. Robert Morris. So. Yeah, or, or invested in themselves and shit didn't work out for him. Or, you know, it's there's a, you're right, Kev. There's a lot of good stuff in the in some of the back, uh, the back issues, the back episodes that uh, like, holy crap, this guy was a dirtbag. But he's now considered one of our founding fathers. <laughs> yeah. But he was our dirtbag. <laughs> That's right. So Elbridge Jerry, again, this, this is why this guy's so fascinating because there's almost it, it's almost a loser without losing until the very last sentence of the, the story, if you will. But uh, 
this first Continental Congress, he doesn't wind up missing out on much because, as you said, Dad, they pretty much get uh, ignored. They write a formal petition to, uh, you know, the, the crown. And they do make the, the one big thing is they do decide they're going to have a boycott on uh, uh, bringing in or importing British goods. So that's going to be very important because um, that eventually is going to lead to a couple other things that things are going to start to get a little tense here. So you're fighting a Cold War, if you will, embargoes kind of the way we were treating uh, Russia and Cuba and stuff like that after World War II. It, uh, you're fighting a Cold War, but eventually that war is going to turn hot, as everybody should know. And if you don't know that America has a revolution and uh, gets rid of England, uh, this is not the podcast for you. Um, please check out Ken Krantz's podcast about music instead, okay? That might be more your speed. <laughs> I love Ken Krantz, by the way, just for the record. Yeah, and not for nothing, too, Kev. Uh, El- Elbridge is uh, also now, um, he's a merchant himself, so I mean, he's making his, he's making his fortune um, by buying and selling. You know, he's a, a importer, exporter kind of a thing. And now uh, if the colonials are deciding that we're going to boycott British goods, I mean, <laughs> there goes the business, right? So uh, Those wondering, by the way, what that noise was in the background, boycott was the word of the day. Congratulations to caller number 47. <laughs> Oh, my God. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, I thought I was uh, down in Florida with uh, my father. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was a foghorn coming in, but I didn't know. You know I wasn't going to question it. But anyhow, just part of the fun with uh, Kahuna on the soundboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there is going to be a hot war now coming in here eventually. And like you said, Dad, blood has been spilt. Uh, Elbridge isn't a fighting kind of guy, but he is a, a very smart guy with a lot of good contacts and resources through his uh, shipping business. And, uh, what he's going to do is he's pretty much going to ensure that this coming rebellion, uh, should it come to pass, is going to be well supplied with ammunition. Because uh, a gun is intimidating looking, but it doesn't do its job without ammunition. So uh, just a few months after the first Continental Congress was disbanded, the shot heard around the world would be fired in Lexington, with more following shortly after in Concord. Okay, uh, That's the crazy part is that even after blood was shed and lives were lost in the name of the cause, the Americans still wanted to work things out with the crown. All right. That's pretty, pretty trippy here. Like, all right. Hey, hey guys, I'll, we, we killed some people. You killed some people. There's blood on everybody's hands. But let's talk. Let's talk. Hans, Bubby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got to find a way I'm out. I'm your white knight, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jerry is going to become, uh, well, he's already very wealthy to begin with. He's going to become even more wealthy, uh, be, not profiting directly off the war. They make sure to make that a point here that he doesn't profit directly off the war like some people were doing where it's like, oh, well, I'm going to sell my shitty meat to the army, you know, that kind of a thing. Or I'm going to make sure that I'm the one who makes uh, uh, this particular you know tent that they're all going to have to buy from me. So he's not profiting directly from it, but everything going on with uh, the world and the state of affairs and his uh, you know invaluable contacts in the shipping business, he's going to continue to create some wealth for him. So it's, it's definitely one hand washing the other, as opposed to just, you know, reaching out with fists and just grabbing everything you can and running away with it. So Elbridge is making money off the war, but he's not a, he's not a jerk and he's very much against price gouging too. So that's kind of a weird thing that you see with him where it's like, he goes, Hey, I'm against this, but I understand why that's happening. He's actually, he's almost like a true moderate. Is that fair to say that? Yeah, I would think that's uh, probably a pretty good handle we could put on him. Well, he's a, a calm guy, too, for the most part. He's a uh, very interesting dude here. I'm happy that we're covering him. And if it's your first time hearing about him, listeners, that's why this show exists, okay? Um, 
Jerry's actually going to make very, very good friends uh, with a guy by the name of John Adams, who I'm assuming you've heard of. Okay. Uh, again, he's uh, already a wealthy guy growing up in Boston anyway, heavily involved in the politics. Of course, he's going to be you know, bumping elbows with guys like him. Uh, this time, he's actually going to get invited to the Second Continental Congress. He's going to take him up on appearing at this one. This is You don't want to miss it. You heard how good the first one was, all right? <laughs> That's right. The sequel's even better. That's right. Uh, uh, Continental Congress 2, Electric Boogaloo. Um, <laughs> so he's going to take him up on their invite this time, and uh, in doing so, will begin etching his name into the history books forever. Him, his good buddy John Adams, his good buddy Sam Adams, uh, you know, and also uh, Thomas Jefferson, with whom uh, Jerry would agree on the importance of, here's a key note, guys. A limited central government. He's going to be good friends with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. So the guy who's going to become, you know, really one of the the the, the pride of the Federalists would be John Adams, and uh, the the big swinging dick over for the Democratic Republicans is going to become Thomas Jefferson. And Elbridge Jerry is good buddies with both of them. All right. It's uh, it's like being friends with uh, I don't know, a, 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 a true establishment candidate in either in both parties, you know that kind of a thing. So, um, Elbridge will also earn the respect of uh, Tommy Jefferson and John Adams when he uses his influence uh, in speaking and just kind of the integrity-based reputation that he has in order to uh, make sure that there's enough support for the passage and signing of a little document, Dad. It's the uh, the Dear John letter from America to the King. That's right. Hey, King, take it and shove it because uh, we're declaring our independence. It's not you, England. It's us. We just need some time. <laughs> need a little separation here. That's a <laughs> um, it's it's amusing, though. So uh, he's actually going to become one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He's going to sign not only just the Declaration of Independence, but you also wind up signing the Articles of Confederation, uh, the U.S. Constitution, you ask? Well, uh, that's a little bit later in the story here, folks, and it's a damn good one, too. So, Yeah, I would say he factors into that. Oh, he's uh, <laughs> man, a if, whole lot. It's one of those things where you're like, uh, the comedians are always so wild, too, where they're like, oh, oh, yeah, I mean, it was nuts. I couldn't believe what was happening on stage when, whenever some gossip or something happens with comedians. It's like, oh, oh, my God, you were there. What happened? Well, no, no, no I was at another club, but everybody was talking about it and I was following their Twitter. And it's, that's kind of what Elbert Jerry's thing turns into with the Constitution later. But uh, again, future president John Adams is so thoroughly impressed with the constancy and integrity of Elbridge that he was quoted as saying, if every man here were a Jerry, the ideals of the United States would be safe from the gates of hell. To uh, quote Nicolas Cage, Dad, that's high praise. <laughs> so, hey, he's one of the good guys. Yeah. Oh, a uh, little side note here, too, guys. I did not find a Jersey tie-in for this episode. So if you're looking for one, I don't have one. But I did find another Jersey tie-in for a previous topic. Uh, we did a killer episode on <laughs> Thomas Paine. Okay. I, that was one of my favorites, Thomas Paine, that we did. And uh, Thomas Paine, or T-Paine as we were calling him, is around the same time from here. He's the author of Common Sense. And believe it or not, I pass a statue in Morristown, New Jersey, of him every single day on my way into work in construction now. So pretty cool. Gigantic statue, too. Check that out. Thomas Paine statue, Morristown, New Jersey. And that's enough on the state of New Jersey here for this episode. You hear us, Pat Dowden? All right, we're not talking about it anymore. But... Um, Having a good reputation will be key in keeping himself out of trouble, all right? Um, 
because there's a little thing going on known as Conway's Cabal, Dad, and uh, they try to name our boy Elbridge Jerry a conspirator in that. In just a little bit of summation here, just for maybe people who maybe forgot or need a little bit of a refresher, uh, what is Conway's Cabal? Uh, that was where um, some of the patriots were trying to oust George Washington as being the head of the uh, armed forces, if you will, uh, military leader and put their own boy in there. And there was a number of politicians and other military people that were, again, trying to put down George Washington, get him out and put somebody else in. And it became known as uh, Conway's Cabal. And uh, they were trying to um, weasel their way into having uh Jerry named as one of the one of the uh, conspirators, if you will, and uh, it was just totally unfounded. Yeah, the, it, and again, it's one of those cool things too, where he says, "Hey, this guy's reputation is good enough." Where he goes, "I didn't have a fucking thing to do with it." <laughs> that was a quote, right, Kevin? Yeah, exact quote, Albert <laughs> Jerry. I like to imagine him with Bill Burr's voice because he's from Boston, but I make that joke too often. I think. Um, but yeah, he was, uh, because of his integrity, they just sat there and like, well, it's his involvement is unlikely and just kind of whatever, let's, you know, move on. It's not him. There's other, there's legit bad guys. We don't need to go hoping someone's a bad guy. So, uh, again, very well known for his integrity and also his steadfastness in his political beliefs. Uh, they were no longer beliefs. If Jerry held them, they became convictions. That's how entrenched this guy was. And he could argue, uh, and, and stay disciplined in those arguments, if you will, to, to try to just hit the nail on the head here, just say, hey, guys, this is what I believe in. And this is why I think this is the thing. Like, oh, well, that's kind of sound like you're you're on their team over there. And he goes, no, I've always been on this team of this thing. And it's just on this particular issue. That side is where it's making, you know, they're making more sense right now. So one of his major beliefs, as I keep kind of reiterating to you folks here, is that uh, the central government should have limited power. OK, it's a. Uh, it, it, again, COVID has taught us a lot, Dad. Would you say that, you know, prior to COVID, you really thought your governor was as powerful as he was? Uh, yeah, well, it, it came down to a whole state's rights, if you want to throw in uh, <laughs> throw in that terminology that we saw later on in American history. But um, the central government for the COVID thing flipped it back to the, to the governors, to the individual governors, and let them figure out what's best for their state. So, yeah, that was... Uh, getting away from the central government and putting it back more to the Tommy Jefferson uh, Democratic Republican side of town where um, the individual states would figure it out. You got to remember, too, at this time, uh, there really, really isn't a, a solid United States of America. They, these guys might have been able to uh, win their independence. Um, pretty much it was, uh, well, Britain didn't want to spend any more money on trying to beat uh, beat the uh the colonials. So we'll just pull back and we'll maybe revisit this a little later on in, eight, in the War of 1812, but uh, which a lot of people feel was the second revolutionary war. But uh, um, yeah, that was, uh, that was um, up to the individual states that they didn't really have a strong central government by any stretch of the imagination at this point. And a lot of people were pushing for it. And the same amount of people were saying, no way, we want to keep this uh, a little more local than rather than central a little bit yeah local would be helpful you know what i mean that's what they were trying to make the whole argument for it now the only time that he's actually going to and this is what a compelling guy he was he's able to argue against his own previously held belief and people are like you know what he's making sense there um and 
You know, Dad, we're starting to set you up here because uh, what we're going to do is that as I'm setting you up for this, I'm going to run over to the refrigerator and grab myself another kim- kombucha. Kombucha? I don't know. I'm trying to quit drinking, guys. So I'm drinking kombucha now, Dad. Whatever uh, that is. Okay, whatever that is. We Looks lost like- him, LP. That's a- <laughs> <laughs> well, I was doing good. I was trying not. To, um, I've really tried to not drink anymore. Uh, I had a little bit of setback in my sobriety. It would turn out that there was actually some ethanol in a couple of the chemicals at work I was huffing. So, unfortunate, right? But hey, whatever gets you through the day, right? We're trying here, folks. We're trying. But uh, the only time that he's going to stray away in Elbridge Jerry from his belief about the importance of a limited central government, he now sits there and he goes, ooh, we might actually need a little bit of a stronger central government on account of this weird thing that's going on in my neck of the woods, the, the greater uh, Massachusetts area, uh, known as Shays Rebellion. Lawrence Patrick Burke Tell the folks at home, what the hell is Shay's Rebellion? In a uh, hundred words or less or what? <laughs> <laughs> now, Shay's Rebellion uh, really was the first big test of uh, central government um, for the United States. Um, the American Revolutionary War is over. So you got a lot of returning veterans from that war. The economy is in the in the shitter that, uh, you know, the, the war definitely whooped the hurt on a lot of people. At that time, too, the the economy was based almost entirely on agriculture. There was very little um, manufacturing going on. So it was a substance-based agriculture. And in the rural parts of New England, and at that point, the rural parts of New England is like Western Massachusetts. That uh, That's the frontier. Um, there's a lot of returning veterans coming back and... Uh, uh, they haven't been paid while they were fighting in the war. They weren't paid. Uh, a lot of people are owed um, back pay. Um, and there's a guy um, by the name of Shea, um, Daniel Shea, that uh, who was actually uh, uh, came up through the ranks. He started out with the Massachusetts militia uh, as a you know infantryman, got promoted uh, up to sergeant. And by the end of the Revolutionary War, he's now a captain. But for five years that he fought in the revolution, he was never paid, Uh, did a really great job. He was a really good soldier. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, he was awarded a ceremonial sword by uh, Marquis de Lafayette, one of the Revolutionary War generals, um, you know, for valor and everything else. But uh, we'll get back to that because now he's coming back to Massachusetts. He's not a landowner. He was really started out as an Irish immigrant uh, coming over from Ireland. He was working as a laborer, (laughs) primarily a farm laborer because he didn't own his own property. And, you know, voting rights and everything else were largely based on if you owned uh, if you owned the land. If you didn't own land, you weren't allowed to vote. Um, So there was a lot of different things going on there. But again, it's an agriculturally based economy and. Um, now that the war is over, a lot of the um, merchants, the American merchantmen uh, based in Massachusetts, in eastern Massachusetts, along the seacoast, um, they were having the screws put on them by foreign investors or foreign merchants that you got to pay in cash. There was no uh, cash and carry kind of a thing here. Um, and there's no coinage yet developed. So... A lot of people were basing uh, 
basing their substance on on the barter system. You know, I trade trading goods for services and that type of thing. Um, and there was no hard coin. There was no gold or silver to be had. So a lot of these farmers were taking uh, merchandise on credit so that when the crops came in, I'll pay you back when the crops come in. Well, um, now these uh, Eastern Massachusetts merchantmen are putting the screws on their people, you know, the, the, uh, the distributors, if you will, in the Western little, uh, little small towns. And, uh, you know, the, in the lean times, the farmers would have to depend on, on credit that, and then now that credit was being taken back. And these merchantmen um, had, through their influence, had laws enacted that if you uh, were remiss in paying back your, your debt, we're going to come in and take your land away, or we're going to throw you in debtor's prison or whatever. But most of the time, they would just take your land away. So now these poor guys that actually fought for the revolution are now being, you know, they're coming home, they're in debt, they're being heavily taxed because Massachusetts is trying to speed up um, their um, war loans or their own war debt. Um, so it's the little guy that's really getting it in the neck. Meanwhile, the, the haves are using their influence to have legislation passed that, uh, that you're going you're to lose the farm if you go into debt. Um, they're not only going to repo your car, they're going to repo the whole, the whole shooting match. Um, there's a, the, the governor initially was, uh, John Hancock. Now, he was all about helping out the little guy, but. Uh, sorry there, LP. I think you mean, uh, Herbie Hancock. <laughs> Herbie Hancock. <laughs> uh, Cliff Clavin. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but he uh, steps down from the governorship, and there's a another guy that that comes in um, uh, as governor, and he's definitely with the merchants. That uh, he's with the with the haves um, on the eastern Massachusetts, and they start passing all kinds of laws, taking people's property away. Um, a lot of the local guys, the, these these veterans of the Revolutionary War, take a little. Uh, take a little negative attitude towards that. And uh, they start this little uprising where they're surrounding some of the courts uh, and preventing the proceedings from going on and, and giving back uh, their, you know, there's, a, there's an armed rebellion, now armed rebellion guys are coming in at it with uh, hay forks, pitchforks, clubs, and the occasional musket or two. I mean, you did say armed rebellion, so I'm just imagining these dudes just ripping their arms out of their sockets, just charging at these people. Charge! Makes a good club. Makes a good club. (laughs) Somebody's arm, you know, swinging that. Well, it's about about money and then debt and then uh, ownership and possession. I mean, it's about – I mean, in one way, you could say that this was a a riot over capital, capital riots, right? Oh. Yeah, absolutely. And we're banned. And we're (laughs) – Look at that. And, vet- and veterans. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyhow, uh, Governor Hancock um, steps down, citing health reasons. And now in this new elected governor, a guy by the name of uh, Bowden uh, comes in and he is definitely in the in the merchant camp as to uh, he, he's he's 
getting legislation passed and that type of stuff, there's a lot of farmers that have this uprising in Western excuse me, Western Massachusetts that are protesting all of this. Uh, they're sending petitions. They're trying to do the right thing again. Now, very similar to what we had at the start of the, the American Revolutionary War with the First Continental Congress. They're sending petitions to their state legislators. The whole thing was screwed up right from the beginning, too, because, again, all the legislative stuff was going on in, in and around Boston and eastern Massachusetts. Now, if you're some poor dirt farmer in western Massachusetts, there's no way you're going to have any kind of legislative voice. Um, first off, you couldn't get there because it's, you know, how many days travel to, to get there to have some of these laws enacted and, and that type of thing. Uh, the long and the short, there's a Western farmers uprising um, uh, to take back some of this stuff or to block the court's proceedings or to, to shut down the whole court thing right there. Uh, these various petitions and stuff are going to be ignored and everything else. So things are heating up. Uh, Bowden, the governor Bowden sends out the state militia. Well, okay, because uh, what are you going to do? You're going to send out the, in modern day times, you would send in the National Guard to put down this riot, which is really what it was. It was an armed riot. Um, so it's more than just a, a peaceful protest when guys are coming surrounding the courthouse with uh, guns, clubs, pitchforks, that type of thing. Um, but a lot of the militiamen <laughs> refuse to serve because they're going against their own friends and neighbors, or it could be the guys that are in the protest would have been also in the militia. Uh, things continue to escalate. Things continue to go to go bad. Um, there's a, this, again, Daniel Shea is a voice, but he's really not a leader to this whole rebellion. There's another guy, Luke Day, and there were other leaders of this whole thing. Uh, Daniel Shea's um, really wanted to kind of work things out peacefully. He didn't want this to come to another armed conflict. Um, the governor realizes that the state militia, at least the state militia that's going to be rousted out from the western part of Pence, of Massachusetts is really not going to do him any good. Uh, so what is he going to do? He's going to form his own militia. So he privately pays through his funds and some of the other merchant class to hire on mercenaries, for lack of a better term, uh, their own private militia to send against these guys. And it comes down to, it really does come down to a shooting war that things escalate even further. There's a lot of back and forth. Um, uh, the Springfield Armory, which is a federally controlled uh, armory, uh, Henry Knox, another guy from the Revolutionary War, is in charge of, of uh, all things military in the early, um, the early, colonial, uh, early United States. But it's, a, it's really a, a meaningless position because he's got no army to back it up. But there is a federal arsenal. And a lot of these uh, re rebellious uh, farmers think, well, let's go over to the Springfield Army. At least we can get some guns and get some good stuff to fight with. Uh, the governor's private militia gets wind of that, and they're defending that. And they actually fire a warning shot over the, the rebels' heads. Uh, 
that really didn't do anything. They kept on coming. So then they're firing uh, two cannons with grape shot at them. Four guys are killed. A bunch of guys are wounded. The uh, the rebels scatter to the to the four winds. Uh, Shays Daniel Shays is now really kind of one of the leaders. He didn't really want to be, but he was the spokesperson prior to this. So the merchant class are listing him as the leader of this whole thing, and that's where he gets a credit for the Shays Rebellion. It's uh, S-H-A-Y-S. So it's not Shays apostrophe S, like possessive S. It's Shays. That's his last name, but it's Shays Rebellion. But there was, you know, hundreds of uh, these guys, and if not thousands of these guys who were up in up in arms or trying to get arms to rebel against um, this. I mean, they were being taxed to the point where they're paying more tax now as American citizens than they were with the British when the British were first leveling taxes. So, hey, why did we go to the why did we go to war with Britain over taxes, taxation without representation? Well, it's the same shit all over again. The little oh, guys. Oh hell no! <laughs> yeah, the little guys getting it in the neck. Anyhow, to make a, a long story short or shorter, and it's uh, not an easy thing. You're doing great, by the way. It's not easy to try to uh, summarize a, a violent uh, or, or a call something that made everybody nervous. I'll say that much. People yeah, are on and, edge. Yeah, absolutely, and you know what's what's the governor going to do when he calls out his own state militia, which is supposed to be his his uh, military arm, if you will, because there is no um, central government army at this point because everybody was afraid at the at the conclusion of the American Revolution that we didn't want to have a strong standing army because that's just leads to trouble because we're going to have some kind of military coup or something. And now the, the military is going to take over the country. So instead of a king, we're going to get a general, you know, that they were afraid that uh, somebody was going to come out of the ranks of the military and take over the country on them in armed rebellion. Um, but I mean, things are definitely heating up here because um, they suspend habeas corpus, which is basically uh, all the legislators back in the Boston area are saying, well, all these leaders on this whole rebellion, this uh, this farmers uprising, uh, we're going to accuse you of being the leaders and the rabble rousers. And we're going to accuse you of treason. And, you know, we're going to we're going to hang you. We're going to kill you for that. Uh, and there's a suspension of habeas corpus, which is a, a trial. Um, you know, they can throw you into prison and we'll we'll get back to you a couple of years from now, maybe, <laughs> you know, there's no no speedy trial going to take place. Um, so, I mean, people are really getting upset over the loss of their their rights, because you got to remember, there's no Bill of Rights yet uh, enacted within er the early United States. Um, so, you know, the whole idea was we're going to suspend habeas corpus. We're going to arrest all the ringleaders to this thing and put this whole thing down. Um, uh, again, the merchants raise this army. They, they, they have a big, you know, the biggest battle, if you will, um, was at the uh, Federal Armory in Springfield. Uh, warning shots are fired. Shays men still keep coming at them. Uh, then they're firing grape shot at them. Things they they do the skedaddle after that because I mean if if you're holding a pitchfork or a club and somebody's firing grape shot at you which is a cannon loaded up with a whole bunch of little uh, little mini cannonballs if you will it's like a, a cannon that's uh, armed like a shotgun 
So if somebody's firing a shotgun blast of cannon fire at you, uh, <laughs> you're not even anything any, holding anything better than a club. You know, who brings a knife to a gunfight kind of a thing? That's, uh, that's not going to go too well. So a lot of these guys, Shays included, do the skedaddle. Um, there is one other little skirmish that goes on, but uh, these guys are now scattered. And if you're a wanted man in Massachusetts, what are you going to do? You're going to do a skedaddle and you're going to go over to state lines. You're going to jump into, into Vermont. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Shea does. And he's hanging out for a while with uh, old Ethan Allen of the Green Mountain Boys, the same guy. Now, Shea, again, he's a Revolutionary War veteran. He was at Ticonderoga at the same time that Ethan Allen was at Ticonderoga. And we were trying to capture that from the British during the Revolutionary War. So, uh Ethan Allen, um, you know, verbally, outwardly, publicly tells him you, you can't stay here. You got to you, you got to go back to Massachusetts. But there is a little bit of support from from Ethan Allen. And, um, you know, Shea is just trying to trying to do the right thing. And then um, uh, th these guys went back and forth, uh, crushing the bellion of the on the of the harsh uh, uh, conditions. Uh, eventually, uh, Governor Bowden issues that uh, if you sign uh, or pledge your oath of allegiance type of a thing, we'll take you back. And there wasn't going to be any anything further after that. But, um, you know, Shea eventually is forgiven, if you will, and goes into uh, into retirement. Now. But he doesn't stay in Massachusetts. He uh, he takes off for for New York State. Actually, he ends up he ends his days in uh, in Sparta, New York. Um, he never went back to Massachusetts with the family and the wife and the kids and everybody else. Well, it's uh, I mean, weather and tax wise, I understand it. You know, not want to go back up to Massachusetts, but um, we got to. Uh, we're I'll tell you what. So Shay's Rebellion for those who you know. You just got to wait in. You had a bonus episode within the episode. That was, uh, <laughs> I was not prepared for the detail you were going into on that one, sir. Solid job. Um, so Shay's Rebellion is a thing that definitely spooks everybody uh, in the area here. It's something they're like, hey, take notice because, you know, there is that power of the people kind of a thing. So Jerry is against the idea of political parties, as we keep saying. He attempts to stay away from joining the Federalists or the, you know, John Adams camp. Or the Democratic Republicans like Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, you know, kind of interesting points here. We'll get to that in a little bit later on. By 1780, the issue of limited or small central government was becoming more and more of an issue, and the divide in the party lines were essentially uh, that the Federalists wanted more control for a central government, and the Democratic Republicans were against that. After all, you just kicked out a tyrant back in England, so why would you invite a new one? So in 1780, Elbridge will resign from the Continental Congress over the issue. He's getting a little, he's like, guys, I, I can't stand the divide here. You're not making any sense. This is like, this is the hill I'm willing to die on. You guys keep trying to make it a bipartisan thing. So anyway, he also refuses to take a position as a county judge, which would have been offered to him by Massachusetts governor, John Hancock. All right. And he likened it to, oh, I refuse to take this position because it's being bestowed to me by the governor kind of like how the kings used to bestow favors on those who would carry out their will in court. Yeah, that uh, that's something I didn't really um, cover, Kev, but John Hancock was the governor and then uh, left. This other guy came in and then John Hancock 
John Hancock came back and he was the one that really kind of smoothed things over. And that whole Ethan Allen thing going up to Vermont, uh, there was you know, all the states, if you call them, they were really one states just yet, but Massachusetts and New York and everybody else was at odds with one another because Vermont hasn't been formed yet. Um, Vermont was really carved out of a uh, land that was being claimed by Massachusetts and New York state. So Ethan Allen had his own agenda uh, between Massachusetts and New York state trying to form his really, which was the 14th state to enter the union, which was Vermont. So, you know, I mean, there's a lot of political intrigue and everybody going for the land grab here back and forth and who you're going to, who's going to be your ally or, or whatever. So yeah, it, it's tumultuous times. And, um, if your own state militia can't handle it, who are you going to call? Well, there was nobody else to call because there was nobody in a central government yet. Well, it's uh, it's worth noting, too, that uh, Jerry's actually going to step out of politics over kind of this issue where it becomes such an, an impassioned thing for him that he actually removes himself from the equation for a little while. So. Anyway, he's a good guy. He's liked and well-respected. and He's a decent man, which means he has no business whatsoever in American politics. But within a few short years, Jerry's going to be called back into politics. He gets a seat in the Confederation Congress. Okay. Uh, Confederation, Articles of Confederation, that kind of a thing, guys. You hear what I'm saying at home? Um, he would serve for a time while in the Congress, uh, while they were meeting in New York City. So this Confederation Congress would be meeting in New York City while there. He does what any uh, uh, wealthy man in New York does. He marries a woman 20 years younger than him by the name of Ann Thompson. Uh, they would have 10 children together. That's how much Elbridge, <laughs> that's how little he learned from him. Well, you know, if you want five, you got to have 11. You know, you always <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Keeping the tradition alive of seeing what sticks. Yeah, it's it, honestly, I hate to say it, Cahunza. I think he treated having kids like uh, getting French fries. Like, oh, well, you know, you're going to pick on a few on the way home. So he's got to have extra. You, know? um, you, might, you might as well supersize those fries for what you're going to eat in the car on the ride home. So. Exactly. So cover your ears, Sunquist family. Children, you mean fuck trophies? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's weird. That's uh, that I think me and Cahuna are evenly matched at uh, one F bomb apiece here so far. Um, <laughs> But I will say this, uh, interesting note, just for the listeners at home, I think most of our listenership is pretty well read, so they're going to understand the importance of this thing. Uh, Elbridge's best man at his wedding would be future president James Monroe. So pretty good guy to pick right over there, all right? So uh, Jerry is now living back in Marblehead, Massachusetts, and now owns uh, an estate that – here's how nice of a place it was – it was once owned by the the former British Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. That was his that, that the Lieutenant Governor's estate was then seized by you know the Americans, if you will, and then it was bought by uh, Jerry Elbridge, who would call it home for the rest of his life up in Marblehead, Massachusetts. So, you may be asking at home, where is the losing KP? This guy sounds like a winner. Well, he is, but little mistakes here and there, combined with being involved in a couple of bad spots, that can ruin any man's reputation. So. Although he had shifted positions on the power of a central government after the chaos of Shea's rebellion, like my father just covered, uh, which keep in mind also did happen in his backyard, Elbridge would still be considered logically consistent and well thought of until the shit hits the fan and he all of a sudden makes enemies on both sides of the aisle during the Constitutional Convention of 1787. So Shea's rebellion is fresh in the minds of most of the men. 
And Elbridge, who was very fearful of the power of a charismatic demagogue, he goes, all it's going to take is one guy with a couple of beers in them to get all the people down at the, the tavern fired up and they're going to grab pitchforks. And, you know, it's like a, an episode of The Simpsons when, uh, you know, the mob rule of Springfield comes in. It's riot, riot, riot. So he's very fearful of that, that one man's words can whip a crowd up into a frenzy. So this is kind of a weird thing. This is where that dichotomy comes in. Uh, Elbridge Jerry's own biographers, some of them his family members, have a hard time kind of categorizing some of his political beliefs. Uh, try this one on for size here, folks. He felt that uh, the government, if you will, he's very fearful of this charismatic demagogue. They could turn the government to a dog and pony show. And uh, he felt that individual liberties absolutely needed to be protected. Okay. But he also felt that the common man was too susceptible to this demagogue type of a leader. So Jerry advocated for a funky balance on the whole thing. The rights of the individual will be held sacrosanct, but I want indirect elections. Indirect elections, what are those? Well, uh, to you know, put it as simply as possible, it would be the idea of, well, maybe every, uh, every state, um, the entire state is decided by a handful of individuals, like maybe the senators and representatives. Like for an example, uh, New Jersey, kind of like the electoral college kind of a thing, New Jersey would just be like, oh, well, uh, the... Uh, our, our congressmen are, uh, you know, we've decided that our congressmen are going to be voting Democratic in this election. So all of New Jersey's votes go immediately to the Democratic Party. So that's the kind of thing where they would shift that over to. So he's into that idea where he goes, I believe in every man has rights, but not every man should be voting because sometimes these guys get bad info. All right. Um, so it's kind of it's a weird position to be. And he's kind of unique in that way. So. It's his funky gimmick, if you will. Yeah, the rights of the common man, but at the same time, the common man can be kind of stupid and easily led um, or led astray. He is by, the opposite of William Jennings Bryan, who thought that the, the common man had, you know, he had faith in the people. Uh, Elbert Sherry, not so much. But all it takes is one Boston, you know, sports team winning a championship, and you can see what people are capable of. <laughs> flip the truck, flip the truck. <laughs> So um, now he was very big on a couple of things here. Uh, indirect elections, like I said, uh, the number of senators, he was adamant about this. It should be um, every state should have the same amount of senators. So as they're trying to form this new government, if you don't know, you should take a civics class or something if they still offer those. Um, but the bottom line for that is that you would have a, in Congress, if you will, in the Senate, uh, every state has two representatives, one, you know, two each for every state that balances that thing out. Now, if population comes into effect, that's where your House of Representatives is going to come in. So that's why a state like New Jersey that is so densely populated and big states like Texas and California are going to have more representatives than, say, a state with a smaller population like North or South Dakota. So he is adamant that the Senate should be two people each because he doesn't like this idea because right now, in terms of where's everybody living, it it means that uh, it, it's why we have an electoral college too, by the way, it was broken down to me this way one time, really cool by a teacher. He goes, do you really want to live in an America where New York city and LA pick the president every couple of years? Cause I'll tell you who's going to get fucked over Ohio. <laughs> so anyway, it's a, a weird thing. Nobody wants that. You can't follow, uh, you can't vote for leaders, uh, that are elected by people that eat quinoa. You just can't do it. Um, but Jerry also adamantly opposed the infamous three-fifths compromise. And if you don't know at home, the three-fifths compromise 
a friend of mine, Josh Wesson, has a great joke about this. He's a, a hilarious uh, comic, a uh, black dude. I think he's from New York, actually, and doing comedy in New York, which it should not be a rarity, but it is. But he has a great joke that he does about the three-fifths compromise. And when he found out what that is, he goes, man, shit, you're telling me that I could have been paying three-fifths of the cover to get into clubs at night? (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, Josh is a funny dude, man. Um, But, yeah, that was the idea that slaves would count as three-fifths of a person in terms of population. Now, that sounds like it's an insult, and it certainly is. Don't get me wrong. The idea that you're three-fifths of a person is, you know, absolutely a messed up concept. But the reason why the South wanted it is because they had the big, you know, the, the majority sharehold, if you will, of slaves in the United States. Massachusetts, as we covered in the Prince Hall episode, is already talking about abolishing slavery around this time frame. And all the slaves in the South would mean more representatives in the South, which means more power and bigger advantages for the political machines that could get built in the South. So that's why he was against that. So um, Jerry would also get some intense political heat for a letter that he writes, Dad. You know, you know, it's a bad thing when your letters are getting published out there. I mean, you want to talk about tweeting and going viral? Uh, our boy yeah. Jerry did that pretty big during the Constitutional Convention. Um, he wrote a letter that got leaked out to the public and widely circulated uh, leading up to the ratifying votes for the Constitution, saying that he would vote yes on it eventually, but not right now because there's some things that needed to be amended before he's willing to give it his, uh, quote, John Hancock. Ooh. Yep. So uh, Jerry clearly stated he was good on this. He really was. Jerry clearly stated that his biggest concern was that there wasn't something included in the Constitution that guaranteed certain inalienable rights of its citizens. Kahuna, make the good people, all right, make the good people who mm-hmm. are part of your high school education proud. What do you think would be some sort of a, a a listing of things that would be considered inalienable rights given to the citizens. It may be a, a document called the constitution should maybe have, you know, just the, the basics of living, having a fair existence, you know, things that should just be normal, but not so normal to most back in the day because a certain group of people are still seen as property. Cause you know, great times, right? Great times. What, what are you going to call it though? Please don't do this. <laughs> wow, is that what we're going to call it? Please don't do this to me. It's actually a pretty good one. It's a uh, all filing the motion. I tried to hide it with sounding so fucking sophisticated. <laughs> I couldn't fucking remember. I'll give you a hint. Uh, no, give don't hint. give me a fucking hint. No, it's great. You're going to love this. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what. He's just sitting on Capitol Hill. <laughs> You know, (laughs) yep, the Bill of Rights. That is what that eventually Elbridge Jerry is going to be one of the guys that guarantees that we get a Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Yeah, he was a holdout on signing it until that was part of it. And, uh, you know, hats off to him for having that uh, foresight and and for the little guy. Now, he he certainly is from this merchant class. He's definitely one of the haves. He's one of the richest men in in the colonies or in the early United States. But uh He's holding out for the uh, for the little guy until we have a Bill of Rights. So we know that that was the right thing to do and that the Bill of Rights is one of the greatest things that ever happened to the United States. But this was controversial back then. That being said, yeah. a couple of high-level politicians claims that uh, Jerry's letter had done more harm than Jerry could ever possibly do good to make up for it in the rest of his life. Um and that it would take him his entire life to undo the damage he'd just done to this newfound country of America. 
So, <laughs> the Federalists were dominating the Constitutional Ratifying Convention, and they ensured that uh, Elbridge Jerry was not made a delegate, which would make him one. He was unable to sign the Constitution because he was not allowed to be a delegate to represent Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So when Jerry yeah. was later invited to attend, still not as a delegate, just invited like, hey, why don't you come see how we make everything? Um he was never given a chance to speak, and he actually had to leave the convention after a very colorful shouting match with a couple of Federalists. How colorful were you talking? Real colorful. <laughs> <laughs> you were going to say yeah. something a second ago, Dad? No, I was just going to say, I mean, here's the guy. He's, he's sticking up for the rights of the, of the common man, and the Federalists, uh, the central government guys, uh, were not even going to allow him to speak, so... Um, you know, they were trying to shut him out of the game totally. Well, uh, it again, this is something where we can clearly see that he was right at the time. Uh, he's not going to be able to – now, his his move now after, you know, kind of being ostracized on the national central government side of things, he's been trying to be the governor of Massachusetts for forever. But the Federalists are very popular in New England, and Jerry's stained reputation uh, essentially kind of got him where he kept losing the the race for governor here. So hilariously enough, for a man who was against population dictating the number of representatives in the Senate, uh, Elbridge Jerry will be nominated by his friends against his will and wins a seat in the inaugural House of Representatives. So no signing the Constitution for you, but how about you become one of the first ever representatives of the United States in the House of Representatives? So from 1788 to 1792, Jerry will serve in the House and it's considered here is I mean, this is like this is that Dick Tracy scene kahuna where the newspaper just keeps hitting, you know, the, and we're seeing, you know, headline after headline being dominated here. This is the greatest hits. All right. This is the uh, this is the, the scene in the movie where it's just the crack of a baseball bat and you're seeing the teams coming back and winning here. Check out what Elbridge Jerry is responsible for it. It's sometimes in full, sometimes in part. Okay. The freedom of assembly, uh, freedom of assembly being made guaranteed. So the right to assemble is a big thing that Elbridge Jerry is swinging his dick around for. Um, protections against search and seizure. Yeah, does that come up anymore? Is that becoming a thing right now? <laughs> have, we, have we ever heard saw that before? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Has it has it ever not been tantamount to everyday existence? So tantamount, oh. by the way, good word here, folks. That's right. I'm just throwing around a little vocabulary, letting you guys know. Oh. Dad, I choose not to operate in an obstreperous uh, form. I like to just kind of, you know, I like to be the common man. All right. I'm just like all you vagabonds out there. Wow. You know all the big words. I bet you even know delicatessen and mayonnaise. I am the (laughs) (laughs) You don't call it mayo, do you? You go mayonnaise. I just Uh, wasn't expecting mayonnaise out of any other word you could have chose. You know, sometimes you got to accept the fact that your retired shop teacher dad just dunked on you. And that uh, coming up on a decade of stand-up comedy did not prepare you for that. I was not ready. Um, multi-syllable <laughs> words. You had to put the right emphasis on the wrong syllable. This fucking guy. Hey, don't you don't you ruin the momentum you're building right, right now. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Continue. He All right. Also, so we got the freedom to assembly. What else we got from old? Freedom to assemble. From Jerry. Uh, Protections against search and seizure, as we said. He supports public credit checks and also supports many, but not all, ideas of a a certain uh, Alexander Hamilton for people who uh, saw a musical once and love history now. You know what? We'll take you guys. We'll take you. Um, He was also, he was very much against the idea, though, because this is interesting. So Alexander Hamilton, big guy, you know, uh, he's usually commonly associated with the Department of the Treasury. But uh, our boy Elbridge Jerry is against the idea of a treasury because he feels that, well, what the head of the treasury department can become more powerful than the president. 
Because, I mean, what do you want to deal with? Do you want to deal with the king or do you want to deal with the bank? The bank has the money. The king just says, hey, well, God put me in charge of this. And they're like, no, no, but everything is really being done through the bank. Yeah. So that was kind of a weird thing. That Guys, get, you see what we're doing here? Where the, this branch has to be able to check on that branch and you can't do this, but you can do that. And these people have a right to this. He's huge on creating checks and balances. Follow the money. Yeah. That's why America has never had, I mean, we've had some weird times, don't get me wrong, but we've also never had a, a, a weird thing where an entire new system of government gets propped up. And we're going to cover that because there's another country that does that. Um, that <laughs> not yet, on wood, not yet. We're getting there. Oofa, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, he's also against the president having more power than any other branches. And he thinks that legislative bodies should be making more decisions than just the executive branch. So that's huge here. He will leave in 1792, uh, choosing not to run for reelection because it's now time to care for his sickly wife. I mean, you have his 10 kids, 10 kids. Yeah, uh, the woman is going to get sick. It's just going to happen. All right. Yeah, but you, you squeeze out that many puppies. Uh, your days are going to be shortened for sure. Yeah, it's like the, the Catholic sketch on uh, Monty Python. <laughs> oh, God. The meaning of life. Uh, 1796. Now we'll see a very interesting election. Then many, including Elbridge, would hope to ease the tensions between these Federalists and Democratic Republicans. John Adams is elected president. And by the way, what would happen back then originally, to, depending on what form of uh, government you're, you're working with and what time frame in America, the vice president would just be the guy who received the second highest amount of votes. So that would mean over the last four years, that would have meant that Hillary Clinton uh, would have been serving as Donald Trump's pres uh, yeah, vice president. And that right now, Trump would be Joe Biden's vice president. So that, that's like, I'm very happy we don't do that anymore because clearly it would not have worked. But <laughs> that was what was going on here. You got John Adams, a Federalist, and his vice president is a Democratic Republican, Tommy Jefferson. So Jerry will stay on good terms with both men during their very tension-filled term. Uh, the hope for unity is not long for this world. These guys, the, the parties, the divide between the two is only going to deepen at this point. So this brings us up to a very important little affair here, Dad. 1789 to 1799 in France, there's a wild little thing called the French Revolution in progress. And in 1797... Yeah. Yeah. Again, this that's the whole thing here. That's another great part of this checks and balances that we've never had a, a crazy revolution where we're beheading people in the streets like this. But in 1797, Elbridge Jerry is selected as one of three Americans to serve as delegates in the new Republic of France on a hopeful peacekeeping mission between America and the aforementioned France. The Jay Treaty had just been signed is in John Jay. Uh, the Jay Treaty had been signed, which eased tensions between England and America, and France goes, whoa, 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 what the fuck are you guys up to here? I don't like this. You two are getting along a little bit too good. You're about to make a move on France, aren't you? So France is not screwing around on this time because, again, like I said, 1797 is when Jerry's getting sent over there. This is about four years after they guillotined their own king and queen in the streets. So Yeah, things were, things were a little... Uh a little uh, uneasy in France for sure. Like who's the well, who's the in command today? Because tomorrow it's going to change. And I thought what would be interesting too, Kev, is that um, uh, Jerry is sent over to France by John Adams. And if you remember, John Adams was sent over to France back at the uh, as a representative of the American colonies when we were fighting for our uh, independence with England. So. And John Adams didn't do too well over in France. He didn't quite get it. Uh, ben Franklin was the guy that got a lot of the credit for schmoozing with the French and getting French aid to come over and help fight England 
in the American Revolution. So oh, I bet you had a great Philly accent too. But frankly, <laughs> oh, dude, you guys got hoagies like wow, wow. Okay, so you call them baguettes, we call them hoagies back home. That's hoagies. Yeah. A couple grinders, man. Go down to the Wawa and sit on our stoop and drink water. Yeah, but, so I mean, John John Adams is sending over one of his best, most trusted people, if you will, best guys, because he knew that that was going to be a it was a total shit show for him. Uh, when he was um, representing the United States during the American Revolution. And now he's sending uh, Elbridge Jerry over there and things are even more screwed up in France with, you know, as you said, executing the king and uh, uh, the the national razor is in full swing at this point. So the, uh, the, <laughs> the government of today is probably going to get the guillotine tomorrow and uh, we'll have an, a new new guy coming in here. Um did yeah, you get but to it, the quote, by the way, that John Adams had of why he sent uh, Elbridge Jerry over there? No. He says, uh, Elbridge Jerry is one of the two most impartial men in America. And uh, then, like, well, who's the other one? He goes, oh, me, John Adams. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're the best. It's, <laughs> well, and we were saying impartial, too, was that they weren't going to be – because the idea being, well, what if one political party can become allies with France – should the other political party then try to align with Britain? I mean, so it, it's weird. You don't quite know how this thing's going to play out. But um, the boys arrive. Uh, they're going to meet with a foreign minister over there by the last name of Talleyrand. All right. Uh, and they meet him in Paris. And just three days after their first meeting with Talleyrand, uh, they are approached by three Frenchmen that uh, demand huge bribes. Uh, and if you don't pay us off, uh, we're going to shut down negotiations here and your entire mission is going to be a failure. Right. You're, here. Yeah. You're going to have to pay to talk to our uh, representatives. Uh, so it, there was bribery right from there. Um, Talleyrand himself was a, a, a weasel of, of the uh, upteenth order, uh, no doubt. Well, it's a, it's a good one here. So now the papers start describing these guys, the three French agents that are trying to shake them down for money as uh, agents X, Y and Z. So this will become known as the XYZ affair, which will lead to the quasi war. And we're not going to tell you guys about that because that's next week's episode. All right. <laughs> quasi war. Okay. Gotta yes. leave them wanting more. It's the truth, man. Um, but as we're wrapping this uh, sucker up here, just to give you the, the, it's explain a little bit. Jerry is going to be the main target of the delegation. The French think that he's going to be the most approachable that they're like, well, here's the guy. He's amicable. He's got integrity. We can get him on this. We'll get him on that. So they freeze the other two delegates out of the negotiations, and the other two guys say, well, screw you guys. I'm going home. <laughs> and they go to head back to America. And when Jerry tried to get back, uh, to go back with them, I should say, Talleyrand actually threatens war unless Jerry stays in Paris. So he's kind of holding him hostage in Paris. By the way, not uncommon for the time there. Marquis de Lafayette got held hostage there. Edmund Burke was held hostage there. Uh, the aforementioned Thomas Paine gets held there for a while. So. Yeah, things things are in total chaos and turmoil in, in France at this time. And actually, uh, Talleyrand, uh, I thought it was interesting, too. You look his his name or that name, Talleyrand, up in an urban dictionary. It says uh, when a person is skilled politically. What? Yeah, that's uh, that became uh, his definition his, his his moniker, if you will. Uh, they use it in a sentence. He would have to be a Talleyrand to talk his way out of this one. So he's, well, a, he's a weasel. Yeah, um, no doubt. That is a great little fact there, too, because uh, Talleyrand becoming part of the uh, uh, 
the, the modern parlance, if you will. It's also going to lead to the next thing, which is why we know what Elbridge Jerry's name is in any historical context. Back home, the papers are running wild with this story, and they're making it seem like Jerry is conspiring with the French against America. Yeah, that's why he stayed, right? Well, how come the, How come he stayed when the other Wait two delegates came home? You know. Yeah, and these other guys are saying that there was an agent there, and there's this weird stuff, but they seem to be working with Jerry. This isn't good. Yeah. So they're calling uh, Jerry a French compatriot or a French partisan, and others are accusing him of doing it to further his own wealth. So Jerry's body, I shit you not, uh, is actually hung in effigy and burned in front of his own home in Marblehead, Massachusetts. So they were he was public enemy number one. He was definitely a, a big, ugly stain on the otherwise spotless reputation that Jerry had. So between the Constitution and this, he's not quite Mr. Popular back home right now. Yeah, and it was all fake news, too. That's the Man. best part. You want to know how you get out of this one? Uh, you keep great notes and you have a good reputation. Luckily, but only after the damage was done to his reputation and there was mobs being formed outside of his house and stuff like that. Jerry's correspondence with Talleyrand is made public and it showed absolutely that he was not guilty of any of the salacious lies being told by the papers at home and abroad. So you are right, Dad. Unfortunately, another opportunity for fake news. <laughs> he's but he's got the he's got the documents to prove his uh, innocence in this whole thing. But uh, the opposing political parties just pump that up big time. And you talk about a mudslinging campaign that was that was huge. It was more than all, mud. It was yeah, all <laughs> Federalists too. They're just throwing they're they're throwing shit at him left and right here. So right. the Federalists are attacking him on this X Y Z affair so uh, constantly that it's going to lead in 1800, despite years of avoiding formal alignment with a political party. Jerry will now officially join Thomas Jefferson's Democratic Republicans. And finally, after many failed attempts, will score a narrow victory to become the governor of Massachusetts. So in our final moments here on the episode, uh, I will uh, just briefly say this here. Uh, as governor, Elbridge Jerry will sign off on, supposedly against his better judgment. This, this is one of those things here. The guy's so careful about everything he does. And this one thing he's like, well, I don't really agree with this, but I mean, how big of a deal could it be? And it becomes his entire legacy. <laughs> Uh, supposedly against his better judgment, he signs this deal that is the new zoning or rezoning of voting districts in Massachusetts. The zoning had been drawn up by Democratic Republicans in order to secure the upper hand for further elections. So, again, because keep in mind, uh, this is you're up in Boston and, you know, uh, the, the greater Massachusetts area. That, that is that's Federalist country. We're not going to go against the Adams boys. The Adams boys are all right by us. You know, he's one of us, you know, that kind of a thing. And they're, oh, well, Elbridge Sherry's one of us, too. Yeah, but he's that jerk off from the XYZ affair. You know, that was proven false, right? I don't care. He just looks like a snake. <laughs> That's right. So, but the zoning had been drawn up by the Democratic Republicans to try to give them a chance to win in Massachusetts. So one such district, because a couple of these districts now had very weird shapes, you know, like the, it's almost like how the states got their shapes that all of a sudden, like that little panhandle that Florida has. Uh, it was probably to incorporate to like, oh, well, let's make sure we get uh, we'll just call the this is Florida, too. But I mean, it's pretty much rubbing up against three other states. Yeah, but it's Florida, you know, for voting purposes. That's Florida. And uh, this I, I shit you not, Coon. You're going to think that I'm making this up. Okay. Uh, someone said out loud when they saw the zoning map of the new voting districts in Massachusetts signed off by Governor Elbridge Jerry. Hey, one of these uh, zoning districts kind of looks like a salamander, doesn't it? And they said, uh, "Oh, you mean a gerrymander?" Uh, are, is that an is that a joke or is Absol that like? A no, that's absolutely fact based. Get no way. <laughs> yep. 
So Salamander <laughs> went to gerrymander. And, and to gerrymandering. This day. <laughs> yep. Wow. That's so dumb. It, it really <laughs> is. It, I can't believe how simple. Because it's one of those things where you, you make that joke where you're like, uh, well, uh, who invented the computer? Well, John Computer sat down one day and decided, well, what if I could do this? No, this John is literally com- John computer. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, the controversy over the rezoning will uh, lead to Elbridge being defeated in 1812. Folks, a lot of stuff going on in the country around 1812. If you want to know more about it, have I got a Patreon for you? Five dollars a month, just a five dollar donation. That's all it is. <laughs> it's the cost of one large cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts, and it helps me continue to keep this show rolling. And by the way, thank you to everybody who shares episodes of the show and who puts out the good word about us. Uh, you know, some of you guys uh, uh, are not able to contribute to the Patreon right now. I totally understand that. If you just want to jump in for a month, listen to a couple of the back episodes and then bail, do what you got to do, man. But just be a part of the thing here. People seem to like what we're doing. And again, we keep notes, we keep addresses, and we send stuff out to you folks for the, the good people over at the Founding Losers. And if you merch, can't afford baby, merch. I just love anybody who listens to the show, to be quite honest. Um, also, weirdest thing that ever happened, uh, cousin Megan the other day, dad calls me up and goes, hey, so I heard on American Loser, you have COVID. Do you need anything? <laughs> That's how you find out your cousin has COVID is by listening to his podcast. <laughs> Megan, you're the best wherever you're at. Um, but uh, 1812, a lot of stuff going on over here. He's now been defeated for governor of his home state. And uh, unfortunately, there's some financial issues finally brewing here. And uh, there's no 401ks or retirement plans or anything. And in order to bail his brother out, he's got a little bit of a shithead brother kind of a thing. Uh, the brother's going to, uh, he's so deep in debt that he's at risk of going to one of these debtors' prisons, like you were talking about, Dad. And so uh, his good brother comes through for him. And Helbridge Jerry says, I guarantee payment in full of my brother's uh, you know, debts. And uh, because of that, he's actually put himself into financial dire straits himself. So he reaches out to his friend and former best man, James Madison. I'm sorry, uh, not James Madison. James. James Monroe was the best man. Monroe is – everyone's kind of sensing that Monroe's going to become president one day. So that that's, you know, the, the kind of that line that we always have in history. He'd make a pretty good president, wouldn't he? And you can – you know, so the – it, literally the die is cast or being cast that Monroe's going to ascend to the presidency here. But he's good friends with James Madison reaches out to me, goes, hey, Madison, you're one of these Democratic Republican guys. Come on, man. I'm a good dude. You know me. Uh, your vice president already died in office. So, I mean, you're looking for a VP, right, man? Right. And, I, you know, you know me, I'm not going to cause any problems here. I'm a reliable guy. I'm not going to get in the way of James Monroe when he's ready to come, uh, you know, take the ball and run with it. So, uh, Elbridge Jerry, folks, becomes the fifth vice president of the United States. So, very safe choice. Experienced, friendly with Madison. Uh, friendly with Monroe, and it's kind of a. He's also going to be able to win you a couple of votes up north because just because right. it's federalist territory doesn't mean that's all they're going to vote for. Right. I mean, Monroe being a southerner and, and uh, Jerry being a northerner, you're kind of pulling in votes from uh, from both ends. So that was a smart a smart move. He's not a hated guy. That uh, you know, by this point in time, he's also been pretty much uh, cleared of that whole X Y Z thing, but. Yeah, he becomes vice president of the United States. Well, it's not a bad gig to have. It's not a very powerful gig either. And this is back in the day when you would uh, the vice president role was different. Nowadays, the, the vice president role, I, I would think, over the last uh, 10 years or so of my life has just been uh, assassination proof. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's assassination protection. Like, oh, I mean, we, we could kill the president, but then uh, 
oh, Jesus, we'd have to deal with this jerk off, you know? <laughs> and by the way, that could be uh, uh, Biden being a jerk off. That could be Kamala Harris being a jerk off. That could be uh, Mike Pence being a jerk off. So that joke's, it, it reaches across the aisle and just flips a giant middle finger to all of you. It's, it's for everybody. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, and you get a middle finger and you get a middle finger. If you look underneath your seat. Family. <laughs> <laughs> look underneath your seat. You get you the get finger. <laughs> But it's important uh, to know that uh, now, finally, in this position of power in the executive branch of the government, whose uh, you know control and power he's been you know putting checks on his entire life, a uh, man of integrity is in the vice presidency, guys. Except at age sixty-eight, he's also the oldest vice president, and I mean that shouldn't really be an issue unless ah oh, shit, he just died a year and a half into his term. Yeah, M- M- Madison didn't have uh, a real good uh, track record with his vice presidents because. Uh, it was offered to Jerry. It was actually in Madison's second term because in his first term, Madison had a uh, a uh, vice president by the name of Clinton, and he died in office. That's George Clinton of Parliament Funkadelic. <laughs> <laughs> so now he's uh, now Madison is in his second term, if you will, and he picks uh, Elbridge Jerry, and uh, he kicks. I think what a year and a half into the into the uh, into the term, almost to the day. Yes, and strangely, uh, nobody else was really willing to step up for vice president after that. There was no other confirmed vice president. So for the last three years or two and a half years of uh, his presidency, he had no vice president. So yeah, uh, I mean, you wouldn't really need a vice president. You know, yeah. well, nothing crazy is going to happen, right? The British aren't going to show up in Washington and burn the Capitol building, right? Yeah, you don't need any help with that. Yeah, go ahead and listen to the Patreon, folks. It's literally a book that my dad and I wrote for you, bastards. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I would. I want to say it's four and a half hours of of pure blue collar New Jersey style history about the War <laughs> of 1812, as best told by two guys who, uh, you know, uh, have had to dig trenches for uh, you know shit pipes in the backyard sometimes. <laughs> so. Jerry is the only signer of the Declaration of Independence to be buried in Washington, D.C. So if you guys go to Washington, D.C., you can go see his grave. That's true. I, I look forward to doing that um, if uh, you know, I ever do wind up in D.C. again. I'm hoping something happens with a uh, comedy or something like that again. Uh, but he's also immortalized in two very famous Revolutionary War era paintings. He is featured in the signing of the Declaration of Independence and is also featured in another painting, called the uh, Washington Resigns His Commission. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and they, the artist for that is John Trumbull, by the way. I don't know if you knew that, Dad. Yes. Yeah, John Trumbull. It's, uh, it's a good name. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know anybody by that name? Little, little inside baseball. All right. Okay. <laughs> but again, here he was, a true moderate who tried to do his best for the people of the United States and uh, wound up getting uh, pretty much – Slapped in the face a couple of times for it. He ensured that the rights of man were protected. He was wary of populist uprisings as well as tyrannical government. But he's always remembered for this infamous voting rezoning that has taken on his namesake. And uh, that's pretty much I me. Mean, you got anything you want to say on the way out, LP? No, just that he was also, uh, you know, a big influence in getting the whole uh, Constitution uh, signed off um, that, that we had to. We had to strengthen the central government somewhat. And with that whole Shays Rebellion thing, uh, then they gave uh, President Washington uh, became more or less the commander in chief kind of a thing that he could order out. And they started to formulate a 
a Navy for the first time and, a, and an army, and they would actually have some federal troops along with a whole lot of other constitutional uh, uh, rights that, that came into play. So, you know, he's, he's more than just uh, gerrymandering uh, voting districts, uh, clearly, that uh, he, was a, he was an all right guy, but he was left with uh, his namesake. Uh, <laughs> it goes to uh, political intrigue and redrawing re, uh, the boundaries of, uh, for the political parties, for the, for the betterment of one particular party. Well, I mean, how else can you sum him up? Yeah, and, it, and there's none of that going on today. I mean, we're not fighting about that today. That uh, <laughs> we want to redraw the, the voting, uh, the voting districts. No, nah, that doesn't happen anymore. We got that all squared away years ago. Nope, nope. Uh, all Star <laughs> Game just got moved to Colorado too, which is hilarious to me because it's like, uh, like, oh yeah, Georgia's got some stuff that the rest of the country doesn't agree with, so we're going to move to one of the states where marijuana is legal and the homeless population is up seven hundred percent. Oh man. It's a trippy time. It's a fun time to be in America, guys. It's always going to be a fun time around here. And your history is very interesting and stuff that happened, uh, again, in the 1700s still, you know, it matters today here in uh, 2021. So uh, that being said, I want to say thank you so much to the listeners of the show. Thank you to Mike and Ming at A Shared Universe for taking great care of us, even if it's just on StreamYard and you're making Kahuna do all the work. Um, Thank you very much to the Kahuna buying the ones and twos. As always, we went over. I can't help it. I try. I try, guys. I really do. I sit down. I was like, no, this is fine. We're not. There's really not much to talk about with this guy. You're fine. Stop it. Quit while you're ahead. I love you, you jerk. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll tell you that. I'll say I love you right now because you also know that I'm going to ask for this episode before midnight tonight so I can post it and go to bed. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, check out. uh, Also, Cahoons, you got anything you want to promote right now? I, I saw you plug something for a family member the other day. I don't know if you want to talk about that on air or not. Uh, nothing to promote at the moment, but okay. a couple of projects in the works that we could talk about later. You might learn the, the Kahuna's real name. <laughs> he's a very talented guy, and we're very happy he's our friend. So uh, we love you on that one, Cahoons. And uh, Lawrence oh, Patrick, uh, I'll let you get back to uh, wrestling with uh, Pammy's kids. Um, you know, <laughs> cu- cousin Pam and uh, the little cousins are visiting uh, my mom and dad down in Florida right now, so they're having a good time with that. I'm holding it down for you folks up here in Jersey, all right? Uh, that garbage is out at the curb, all right? That garbage is out at the curb. Well but done, KP. Well done. It's what I do. Uh, if you guys uh, want to come see me uh, live doing comedy, uh, you can't, but you can come watch me put in a drain pipe in Morristown tomorrow. So come do that, all right? Um, <laughs> everything else, I mean, how else can you sum him up? He's one of uh, the, the true moderates and uh, one of the true creative beasts if you will for this wonderful government and a lot of the rights that we do get to enjoy we have a pretty good life uh on the whole when you start thinking about uh where things could go wrong like again in france where people are just getting beheaded and your head rolls down into a basket just because you hey did you fart in public <laughs> so, but anyway uh again he's uh, this guy with a brilliant lifelong career and yet he's always remembered for that goddamn salamander joke somebody made about him and uh, oh, that's, that's awful. What, that's, that's like being given the worst nickname at a bonfire with your friends. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a story unto itself, Kona. <laughs> long, long story. Yeah. Okay. That'll actually be next week's episode, but we will cover the uh, a little bit more on the XYZ affair and, of course, the quasi war next week here on American Loser. An American Loser, the day I was born. American loser the day I was born An American
can't lose her the day I was born.